0: Good morning. He is risen. I don't normally do that. You guys cajoled me into it this morning. You just kept coming at me constantly, so I knew, hey, we need to say it. We need to recite it. This text, my name is Jared. I have the privilege of pastoring here at All of Life along with Trevor and a couple other guys named Dave and Larry as well. And uh, this, this text that Trevor just read, I want to lay before us one more time as we're just getting right into it. That's what we do as a church here. We open the scriptures. We want to know what God's word says to us. And so that's what I want to lay before you this morning. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, this is a real encounter that the Apostle John is having. I fell at his feet as though dead, but there's a but there. He laid his Right hand on me, very specific, saying, Fear not, I am the first and I am the last and I am the living one. I died. That's not the end. Behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Hades is a funny word that we're not used to. It's a place of the dead. There's a roadmap for us this morning, just where we're going in this text. I'm going to take a long time, actually, to get back to that text this morning. It's going to be a long setup there. And if you're not familiar with the Apostle John's life, I also want to just do a, a short brief character sketch of who John is, and then I want to lay before you some question or a question for everyone to to answer. And I realize the dynamic this morning in the room. You got your babies underfoot. You got your little people around you, or there are little people around you. I just want to emphasize it's no distraction to me. I've got a microphone on my face. I can just speak louder. So, Go ahead and parent your kids, love your kids, we love them too, we are grateful that they're here, Uh, and it's, parents, you know the art of paying attention when you've got all these little people around you, right? Whether you believe the Bible is true or not, if you follow the storyline of the Bible and you tune into the the events as they unfold, there are some dominating and some recurring human realities and also human emotions. A recurring reality for most of the people that we read about in the Bible, one of the recurring realities is uncertainty. Uncertainty. We see this all over the pages of the Scriptures. People are consistently uncertain about their future, uncertain about what God is doing, uncertain about how they fit, how things will go if they choose to do things God's way according to God's design. For example, Jesus had 12 disciples. You might have heard of them as the 12 apostles. These were his close confidants and his friends, but also men who were learning from him. And there were others also, but the 12 are significant. And when Jesus was crucified, these disciples, they, they all stuck together. They stayed together on that Friday night and into Saturday and into Sunday, but they were hiding out. They were locking their doors because they were afraid of being associated with Jesus and afraid of what might happen to them if they were found. Their leader was just executed, and they're huddled up together in their grief. And so I, I can imagine that they're asking questions too. We thought he was the Messiah, but what if it was a ruse? He did some pretty powerful stuff, but what if, what if that isn't actually true? If they find us, we're goners also. And to be sure, if any, if any of us, if you or I, if we traded places with them, we would do the exact same thing. Self-preservation is an incredibly strong motivator. Uh, it is amazing the things that you and I will do to avoid death. It's also the um, amazing the way that some of us gamble with death. You might know that person. You might be that person. You might live with that person. Uh, a dominant... A dominant emotion that I encounter often as a pastor—that is, rela- it's related to people's uncertainty about following God—and this dominant emotion that I come across often and that I that I feel and that I deal with and that I have to live out and figure out in my own world too. This emotion is fear. There are others too, but when we're uncertain about what God is doing in our life, oftentimes there's fear that is following this uncertainty closely behind. We have a fear of saying yes to God because of all of the what-ifs. Have you experienced this if you're a follower of Jesus? Or maybe you're exploring the claims of Jesus as well. So much of these disciples' uncertainty and so much of their fear was about what could be coming for them. It was about what might come for them. It was about what might not come. Maybe Jesus isn't really the Messiah. Maybe he really isn't going to overthrow Rome. Maybe he isn't really going to liberate our people and liberate us. And so much of our shared experience is is that too, this human experience. We often... Fear a future of being radically committed to Jesus Christ and to his way. We fear what that might mean for us. We fear what the future holds, what it might cost us, or what the future might not hold if we go down a particular path. Maybe you've heard of the acronym fear. You've probably heard of this, false evidence appearing real. Have you heard of this acronym? It's a healthy definition for some unhelpful uh, fear. What this is, false evidence appearing real, we make something up in our minds, we think that it's evidence, and we tell ourselves a story that isn't actually true, that hasn't actually come to pass but then we begin to believe it and then we begin to live in light of it and this isn't a good kind of fear it's actually a bad kind of fear but there's also an instinctual fear that's been given to you and I as a gift it's also a fear of the future but it's a kind of life and death fear that actually that actually helps us out f-e-a-r forget everything and run have you heard of this uh, like, uh, this is my new definition of fear, forget everything and run, All right, You see a bear in the woods, forget everything and run. Or if you're armed, you have other options. If you've got uh, little kiddos under feet and they're crawlers and then they start walking, forget everything and run, right? You feel some of this as they start to terrorize the house and opening up the cupboards and you got to put gates up on the stairs and all the stuff, right? it is this forget everything and run fear it can be actually a good fear a helpful fear but let's be honest if if you and i inventory all of the ways that you and i are afraid of what it means to give our future like an like a blank check to jesus how much of our fear is actually life and death fear versus the kind of fear that we just tell ourselves is life and death. I don't like it. It might be awkward. It might cost me, so I'm going to move away from it. It feels like a bit of a death, so we'll call that life and death fear, and we'll just back away slowly or quickly. Either way, fear can be a liar in our lives. We do grapple with untrue things that we tend to live from and believe are going to come to pass, but they, there's no evidence for them actually coming to pass in real time. So here is a, here's a question for you. I want to ask you this question, and I, want, I would love for you to ask yourself this question. Honestly, does your fear of totally aligning your life with the way of Jesus block you from actually saying yes to your next step with him? Does your fear of totally aligning your life with Christ and with His way of life, does that fear actually block you from, staying, from saying yes to your next step with Him? And I do want to say that total alignment rarely happens in a moment. This rarely happens in a moment, but actually alignment with Jesus Christ and His ways is a long string of yeses, over the course of a lifetime. One author Eugene Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction. It's a series of many 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 yeses over a lifetime that equates following Jesus and his way. I want to take a moment and just speak to those of you who are in the room. Maybe you are here this morning and you're here with a friend or somebody that you care about and but you're not convinced in the slightest. That Jesus is God. You are, uh, I want you to know this from us and also from Revelation Church. You are completely welcome with us and you are wanted with us while you figure out who Jesus is or who Jesus isn't. Maybe, though, you do believe that Jesus is God. Maybe you believe that He died to forgive you of your sins and that He rose from the grave in order to prove that but you find yourself in this pattern or this place where you're still holding out on him. You're not ready to say yes. You're not ready in the the slightest to give him a blank check. I want you to know also that you are completely welcome and you're completely wanted with us here at All of Life and also with Revelation as you figure out the scope of his power and the scope of his authority and his competency to govern your life which he can actually do far better than you can because he created your life and this life. Maybe you're even, uh, you're even further along in your faith, and, but as I'm talking, that you realize you're in this stage or you're in this season of life where you're Mr. or Mrs. Half-Heart. You've you got one foot in, one foot out, life full of distractions, you're drifted, you're drifting, you're complacent, you're afraid, I want to say to you let's figure this out. Let's lean in. Let's look let's take an honest look at what it means to follow the real Jesus. Maybe you're serious about discipleship. Maybe that's you and you have this long history of saying whatever saying yes to whatever the risen Christ wants of you and even now you're you're, you're Your temperature is up because you're leaning in and you're looking for your next step, the next adventure that Jesus wants to take you on for the sake of his glory and for the sake of his kingdom. I say, great, let's go together, please. But I do want to just back up and I want to speak to those of you who have identified uncertainty and identified fear related to to what it means to follow Jesus even more closely in the months ahead. Does your fear of the future tempt you to forget everything and run? You start to feel this overwhelm and you're out. Jesus has any demands on my life? I don't don't know. I I want some other things more in the current moment and I'm just, I'm not there. Corey Tenboom, she says, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, or we could say difficulty. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its difficulty. It empties today of its strength. If you're vulnerable, if you're in this place where you're, you're vulnerable to giving harmful fear, too much sway, or too much of a vote in your life, I do have good news. We do have good news for you. And I hope that what you hear today and what you read, with today, um, that you'll let it into your ears, that you'll let it into your mind, that you'll let it trickle down into your heart, and I hope that the good news of Jesus will meet you and will transform you wherever you are, whether you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're on the side of skeptic or beyond, or whether you're a brand new Christian and you know you've got a lot to learn and you don't really know where to start, or you're a little ways in or you're a long ways in, wherever you are, the reality of the gospel for you and I, the reality of the the coming of Jesus Christ to live in our place and to die in our place and to rise from the dead and to prove his authority and his power, the reality is, is that every single one of us has a move to take. We have a next step to take. There's a command that's repeated frequently in our Bibles, and the majority of times that this command, it, it, when it comes, it comes from God, it comes to men. But there are times in the Bible when people say, "Do not fear to one another, but mostly, this command, "Do not fear," is it's God who says it. So if you are, uh, you've followed Jesus for any amount of time, and you've had an encounter with God through His Spirit or through His Word or through His people, you know the kind of weight that that washes over you, how you feel in those moments read like a book. You feel exposed or you feel rebuked at times, or you feel uh, comforted and you feel assured and you just feel the burdens literally fall off of your shoulders If we were to encounter Jesus as he really is, right now, God in the flesh, post-resurrection Jesus, if you were to walk in this room through those doors or those doors or that door or appear here with me just out of nowhere, we would shake. This room would collectively, the oxygen would leave the room. We, some of us would faint, others of us would go silent. Some of us might run for the doors if we encounter his glory and we know that he and us, were not right with him. We do not have a relationship with him. We actually fear him, the kind that says, forget everything and run away. And God knows this when he appears to his people and when his people encounter him. And so his first words... When people have encounters with the real Jesus or with living God, often they'll calibrate us so that you and I can hear what comes after these words. And the command that comes is, do not be afraid or do not fear or fear not so that we can hear what comes after. These commands are almost always accompanied by a statement that God is near, or he's with you, or he has come to help you. This do not fear actually comes to those who are about to receive mercy. And there's this one time that we just read in Revelation chapter 1, where fear not occurs. And if we look at this, and particularly if we look at what comes after this, it can put some real serious, cold, hard strength and courage into our heads and into our hearts and into our hands. It's like a wild card. We can use it anywhere. It's good for any play. It's good for any situation. It comes to one of Jesus' main guys. He's an apostle named John. Trevor talk to us a little bit about who John is. John is a close confidant. He's a follower. He's a friend of Jesus. And for those in the room, maybe you don't know much about John. So I want to just give you a brief character sketch of who John this apostle is. He's one of Jesus's three main guys. Jesus has the 12, but then there's sometimes that he just pulls Peter, James, and John off to the side, and they go and do some cool stuff. He's like, hey guys, come on, look at what I'm about to do here. He gets, John actually gets really special access to Jesus, along with this brother named James. And James and John, they are brothers, and they're commercial fishermen, along with their, their father, a guy named Zebedee. And while John and James are doing this commercial fishing with their dad, they're mending their nets on a shore. They get this famous invitation that we read about in Matthew's gospel. And the invitation is, follow me and I will make you fishers of men or fishers of men and women, fishers of people." These guys were James and John. They were really tight. They're mentioned all over the Gospels together in tandem. And these guys are zealous and these guys are ambitious. They're, they're, they're on tour with Jesus in the countryside. Jesus is preaching and healing people and doing all kinds of wild stuff. And they come into a Samaritan village which borders this area that they were in. And these Samaritans rejected Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God is coming near and James and John are miffed about it and they ask Jesus legitimately, can we firebomb this village? Jesus, of course, he says no. There's another occurrence where these guys, they get to Jesus when the other 10 disciples are maybe off doing something else, and they kind of weasel their way in, and they say, "Hey, when you overthrow Rome, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit one on your right and one on your left? We want the positions of influence, and we want the positions of power. And when the other disciples hear this, they're mad at James and John. They get this nickname, "Sons of Thunder." Because there's a kind of recklessness and a kind of zeal and a kind of ambition that, that needed to be tamed. They were untamed and unpredictable for sure. One of the apostles in our New Testament, Paul, he calls, uh, he calls John a pillar of the church. John was incredibly well respected among the churches. His brother James in the book of Acts in chapter 12 was actually murdered. By Herod, because James was a follower of Jesus. In the wrong place at the wrong time, and he's one of the early martyrs in, uh, in our Bibles after Stephen. So John now knows what it is. He knows the kind of cost of following Jesus. He knows that this isn't always going to go well. He's lost his brother and probably his best friend. He wrote, Um, five of the books in our New Testament. He wrote the gospel that goes by his name, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote later in his life some letters to some churches that he was pastoring, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And then, like Trevor said, he wrote the last book of our Bibles, the book of Revelation, which is this apocalyptic, prophetic view of the end of the age where King Jesus rules. Revelation isn't about all the wild, fiery stuff that happens at the end of time. Revelation is about the authority of Jesus Christ. Tradition holds that he is uh, the only apostle who died of a natural death. He died of old age. Uh, He refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. It's kind of a wild nickname. It's a bit of a mouthful, but he's always referring to himself as the one who Jesus loved. Imagine that kind of assurance where you just, you know, you feel so loved by God that you take on the nickname. Yeah, I'm the one that Jesus loves. I imagine that God in the disciples, you know, got under their skin a bit too. Whatever, John. John actually watched Jesus suffering at the cross. He's there. He's there, there. And Jesus' mom, Mary, is with John. And Jesus, from the cross, tells John, she's your mom now. You know if somebody says, take care of my mama, you guys are tight. He is one who Jesus loved for sure. He suffered terribly throughout his life, but this guy lived an epic life. He lived three solid years with Jesus, like doing the stuff seeing the stuff. But also, let's take a step back and let's think about the ways that John the Apostle was tempted to fear the cost of following Jesus as his Lord and Master and King He's fishing. This is the family business. These are blue collar guys. Zebedee is their dad. He's been doing it. Probably their granddad, their great granddaddy. All of them have probably been fishing. They live on the shores of Galilee. This is the family does. This is how the family provides for the family. And this guy with a reputation approaches, a guy who has authority and a guy who has power, and he comes to you. He's a rabbi. And it was really, really, uh, it it was a sign of high honor to, to be able to follow a rabbi in this day. And so this Guy, Jesus, who is known as a rabbi, comes and he says, hey, follow me and I'll make you not just fishers of fish, but also fishers of men. And Imagine the questions in John's mind. Do I? Don't I? Is this a short-term gig? Is this a long-term gig? Am I going to be able to get my job back when I come? Like, what are, what There, it was not spelled out for him at all, and he does follow. What about my future? That's got to have been a question at some point. In, in those days and weeks when John and his brother James started to follow Jesus. Or maybe, you know, he's left the family business, commercial fishing, and now he is following Jesus, but Jesus has now become a target of the religious power brokers and the most influential politicians in his day and in his community and Jesus is tussling with them, and they're figuring out ways to destroy Jesus. So John now is associated with Jesus. Does this mean I'm going to lose my community? Does this mean I'm going to lose my friends? Does this mean I'm going to lose my life? Does this mean we're going to be killed? Does this mean we're going to be in imprisoned? What does this mean? Thrown out of the synagogue, our place of worship? Or is he following along with Jesus too? What about the other disciples? Man, these guys are getting a little close to Jesus. It's making me a bit uncomfortable. Am I going to lose my access to Jesus, You can see why him and he and James kind of snuck in on the side to try to get the place at the right and the left. Those questions had to be, those fears had to be, had to be dogging them and following them. And John wrestled with fear of the future questions. And fear of the future questions are questions that you and I wrestle with too. If I follow Jesus, if I go all in with this guy who I can't see but I have a sense of his reality i be okay? What about my friends? If I start following him, are they going to think I'm weird, a religious nut? Like, are they going to stay my friends? Are they going to turn me out? Is it going to get awkward? What about my family? Are they going to reject me? What about my place in the world? What about my job? What about my, my place in the community as a community leader? If, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then it doesn't really matter whether you follow him or not. He's one of many good teachers who has existed in the world. Moral, ethical teachers. But John and all of the other disciples seem to live with a different Jesus in their view. To them, if Jesus has been raised, then nothing else really matters. If the reality of resurrection from the dead is true, then I've got to go all in with this person. John had to have had these questions before Jesus was crucified and brutally murdered. But then Jesus rises from the dead and John saw him. He saw him with his eyes in the flesh. The scriptures tell us that he repeatedly hung out with Jesus along with other people for a period of about six weeks, 40 days. And this encounter with the real Jesus, it animated and it directed how John would live out his days, like Trevor said, decades. He continually offered his yeses to Jesus. That's the record of John's life. He would endure decades of suffering because of it too, and yet he said yes faithfully. And John lives into his old age. He comes into his older years. And history tells us that John had actually been tortured. And it was like the Romans couldn't get rid of these guys. They're pros at killing people, and they couldn't get rid of John. He's just sticking around. The thunder's still in it. He survives. He keeps pastoring these churches, these small communities. He writes letters to these communities. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. He's lost them. He's been stripped away from them, but he writes them in order to strengthen them and pastor them. And what's so wild about John is that he, at one point early in his career with Jesus, he's trying to call down fire from heaven to kill all the people. And at the end of his life, he becomes known as the apostle of love and he just cannot stop urging these young churches, no matter the persecution and the suffering that you're experiencing, keep loving. Keep the love of God wild and alive and white-hot in your heart. And so his love for Jesus, the Son of God, his love for the church, his love even for his enemies, keeps to, like the temperature on his life turns up, not down. He's not jaded. He's not cynical. He's not given up on humanity. He's on this island for convicts off the coast of Greece. It's an island called Patmos. He's an old man stranded there on purpose by Rome left to die. But John keeps track of his days. And Sundays happen to be a really important day to John. And they happen to be a really important day to the church. Because it's the day that Jesus rose from the grave. It's called the Lord's Day. And so John, is, he knows what day of the week he is in. And he is worshiping. And he has this encounter with the real Jesus that he did not expect. He had this encounter way back when, this 40-day period with Jesus. But now, again, he perceives the real Jesus as he really is, both human, in the flesh, enfleshed before him, and God. And this Jesus that he encounters is radiating with power, and he's radiating with authority, and he's radiating with majesty, and he's radiating with And the old man, a friend of Christ, falls down terrified. He's fearing his future again. Forget everything and run. And the only place the old man can go is to the dust of the earth. Extreme anxiety. Here's what comes next. Fear not, John. And he tells us that Jesus put his right hand on John's shoulder. Jesus touches him. Now, if Jesus commands John to fear not, and then if Jesus stops there, if there's no words that follow the fear not, where does that leave John? It's up to him, right, to make sure that he stays the course. His life and well-being will continue or will depend on his own willpower. And if Jesus only says, if he only says fear not to you and I through Scripture, and if he stops there, where does that leave you and I? In the same sinking boat as the fisherman John. It's all up to us. But the sentences that follow, fear not, change everything because what comes after? Fear not. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Jesus, the Son of God, didn't just come into existence at his human birth. Scripture teaches that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. The way that John would end Revelation in chapter 22 is that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and he is the end. He says, fear not, John. I'm the first and the last, and I'm the living one. Still here, John. I died. You saw it, John. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. You see it, John. I'm present. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Keys symbolize authority and Christ holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands. Hades is this place of the dead. This means that Jesus has the power to send people to death and to Hades or to deliver them from death and from Hades, which means that Jesus, that, that rather death's door has been unlocked from the inside and Jesus Christ holds the keys in his hand. If this is true history, why would we not totally align ourselves with the living one? The conqueror of death, the one who is God, the one who is Savior, the one who is Lord over and of everything. His resurrection is not mere illusion or delusion, it's an invasion. It's an invasion into our world meant to confirm his authority and meant to confirm his deity. Jesus is God. His resurrection asserts it and Jesus changes everything. The resurrection proves that Jesus changes all who he touches. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has any dominion over him. A pastor and a theologian uh, who died at the hands of the Germans in the 1940s. and 1945 was when he was hung. He refused to, to capitulate to the Nazi state church. He continued to stay faithful to Jesus. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and this is what Bonhoeffer writes. He says, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. They write because that's what they believed. That's what they write because that's what they believed. Bonhoeffer goes on, he says, he is, Jesus is the first fruits. He is the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been unlocked since the death of the first man. Rather, he has forced open a door that has been locked since the the death of the first man. Jesus has met, he has fought, and he has beaten the king of death. And everything is different because Jesus has done so. If the tomb is empty, anything is possible. If the tomb is empty, anything is possible. One author says, Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. Joshua ends with Joshua's death. The gospels end with Jesus' resurrection. And that changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus is the antidote to our fear of saying yes. It's the antidote of saying yes to Jesus, of our fear. If Jesus has been raised from the dead and assures his followers that they will be too, then the truth for us is that death, not even death, is a threat to our futures. Jesus will not leave us. He will not forsake us. We may suffer but our suffering will end. We may die, but even our death will end with life. Timothy Keller writes, when Jesus Christ was in the garden of Gethsemane and the ultimate darkness was coming down on him and he knew it was coming, he didn't abandon you. He didn't die. He, 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 he died for you. If Jesus Christ didn't abandon you in his darkness, the ultimate darkness, why would he abandon you now and yours? Years before this text in Revelation, John wrote his gospel. And there's this famous line in the gospel of John in chapter 3 where John writes and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him or whoever puts their trust in him will not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through his son redeemed, restored, renewed, made new. Every single one of us in this room, myself included, has a yes to offer. What's your next step in following Jesus? What is your next step? Maybe you're in this place where you recognize I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I need to be. I need to quit stalling. I need to quit hedging my bets. I've recognized and I realized that Jesus is God and that I need to give him control of my life. What the scriptures instruct us to do in that moment is to confess our sin to him, our need to him, to call to him, Jesus, Lord, will you rescue me? Will you redeem me? Will you renew me? And the scriptures teach that when we do that, the spirit of God takes up residence within us and begins a renewing work that never stops until we are renewed in completion. He who began a good work in you will not forsake it. He will bring it to completion. Or maybe you're a person in the room and you're like, hey, I, I've, been, I've been running from him. I, I know he's God. I've been afraid to give him my yes. But I recognize that. and The antidote is to to repent. To repent is to change your mind. As you change your mind, your way of life will follow. Change your mind about what? Change your mind about who Jesus Christ is and what he is asking of you. There is no safer place long term than to place your trust in the real Jesus, than to follow him. Maybe you're in a different category in the room. I have been so angry with him. I want nothing to do with him because of the pain that I have experienced. He could have done the thing, but he didn't do the thing. And I'm stuck. So angry that I've tuned him out, I've avoided him. But the reality is, is that I'm scared. And the reality is, is that I'm hurting. And the reality is, is that I sense that he loves me, but I've rejected him. I'm sorry. The answer is to say that to him and to come back and to recognize that with open arms, he will not turn you away. The scriptures teach that all who come to him will not be turned away in shame. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you're, you're lukewarm. You're, you feel like you're on the downward trend. You're growing cooler. I need Christ, but some days I don't really care. I just can't seem to pursue him with any kind of consistency. The reality for you is to ask him for his strength and to bring people into your world, into your community who can help to carry you and who can help to answer questions and who can help to, to, to urge you along in your faith. We cannot do this alone. Maybe you're in a, a, a different category. I'm, a, I'm afraid of God. I'm just afraid of Him. I don't know what to make of Him. I can't explain it. Maybe I can't explain my fear. I'm actually too afraid to open myself up and to allow Him to have control of my life. This is the reality about who this real Jesus is, the living one, the, the one who lives forevermore, who died but who is no longer dead, the one who is called the King of Kings. He also describes His own heart as gentle and lowly. And he will never put those who come to him to shame. Maybe you're here and you're like, "I'm here, Lord, send me. I'm in. If anybody would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is my urge for us as the follower as followers of Jesus or not yet followers of Jesus or barely followers of Jesus, wherever you find yourself, my urge For us this morning is to forget everything and run to Jesus. To lay ourselves down in hope, in front of him, and to say, what do you have for me? What is next? Because this is who you are running to. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He laid his right hand on me and he said, fear not, I am the first and the last and I am the living one. I died, behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades, right? Therefore, the things that you have seen, John, the things that are and those that are to take place after this. May I urge you, appeal to you to say yes to your next step, whatever that looks like to you and whatever that looks like for you. We have some people who are going to come up and who are going to join us this morning and they're going to get in that tub and Zach is going to walk us through the beauty and the sacrament of baptism. And as we stand and as we cheer these people on, I wanna just pray for us that the spirit of God would activate us and animate us to believe that he is who he says he is, the first and the last, the firstborn from the dead, the living one who holds the keys of death and Hades and the keys to the future of every single person in here. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we love you and we thank you for your plan. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit who comes and confirms that you are God and that there is no other. Would our joy in you as we celebrate and as we consider our next step with you, would our joy be full? Lord Jesus, would you call to faith those in the room who are right on the edge? Would you confirm the faith of those who have been running, would want to come back? Those who are angry, but are willing to lay down their anger to be comforted by you. Would you move among your people and make your glory palpable? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Zach, where